Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden with the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to a very, very special edition of our Writers Live series. Tonight's series is brought to you by a generous gift from PNC Bank, and we're very pleased that they have allowed us to bring in such wonderful programs and authors. As you know, and we thought, as librarians, uh, March is Women's History Month. And if you'll note, uh, it took about seven years, seven days and seven years to get from a week to a month. But we're at a whole entire month now. But as you know, and with other uh, commemorations, this is the month that we raise awareness, but Women's History Month is all year round. And tonight, we're honored to have an incredible group of inspiring women, all making a difference every day, and also making history in their own right. Tonight, they're here to talk about a marvelous new book, Being a Woman Surgeon, and the personal experiences and stories behind their life-saving actions. I'm personally excited, though, to have the opportunity to meet, and I have already, and introduce women who are trailblazers in their field and breaking glass ceilings. If you didn't get a chance to see, and I have an extra copy, of the wonderful article in today's Baltimore Sun about our author. She's a critical care surgeon at the Baltimore VA Medical Center and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Surgery at the University of Maryland Medical Center. And despite her busy schedule, she still found, found time to be the editor of the book we're spotlighting tonight. Now, here's something, and as a librarian, we're always looking for facts and new information. Well, just tonight, I found out, and this is something that many of you have probably experienced, women support women. And when you see strong women who are uh, achieving, you don't have to look far uh, to the side of them or behind them or with them to see the supportive women that have been in their lives. And I found out tonight that they're also very uh, creative. Yesterday was Dr. John's birthday. Now, of course, she didn't tell us this. She didn't tell us this, didn't breathe a word when she came to do the background and all of that and everything. But she's been trumped. <laughs> because yesterday she was a little, I think a little maybe perturbed or just wondered why her mother didn't call her from Germany. It was her birthday. But I'm sure she's thinking, oh, well, Mom probably had something to do. Well, tonight, guess who showed up? Her mother from Germany. She's here. She said, I couldn't miss it. And the best part of it is her mother stayed with her sister, her only sibling, last night, and they didn't breathe a word. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being supportive. And Dr. John, thank you for what you do and bringing this wonderful panel. Please welcome Dr. Preeti John. Thank you, Dr. Hayden, for that really nice introduction. Um, those of you who know me well 
know that I don't really enjoy public speaking. But tonight is about all the wonderful women who've contributed to this book and their very special stories. And uh, so I'm going to do my best. Um, Pratt Library was generous enough to host this event for us um, this month, March, which is Women's History Month. The book is going to be released June 1st. That's the official publication date. Um, but it's, it's wonderful to have this beautiful venue for this event. So a little bit about National Women's History Month. Uh, President Carter issued this presidential proclamation. And in 1987, Congress declared March the National Women's History Month in perpetuity. It was to recognize, honor, and celebrate achievements of women in America. Um, when I was reading the presidential proclamation, I came across these words, achievements, leadership, courage, strength. Um, they are some of the qualities in the women who've shared their stories in this book. Um, the book has contributions from women of different ages, right from the 20s to the 70s. So it's, it's a very wide range. Um, almost all surgical specialties have been represented. And um, they, the contributions are from all across the country, from Hawaii to New York, from New Mexico to Canada. So um, I hope you enjoy reading that. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of women in surgery, and then talk a little bit about current state um, numbers so that you have an idea of how things have progressed during the past few years. The heritage of women in surgery started with the dawn of Western civilization. Um, along the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers was an ancient civilization, ancient Sumeria and Mesopotamia, um, present-day Iraq and Syria, as well as ancient Egypt, were um, historic in that women started surgical procedures even in, in those times. Pictures in tombs and temples have been found depicting women surgeons. Surgical instruments have been found in the graves of women. Egypt was the origin of healing temples, which later progressed into hospitals. Around 4000 BC, a dynasty of queens was established, and these women rulers were all students of medicine. They held high status, and uh, priestesses who also practiced medical procedures were recruited from ranks of nobility, and um, Sais and Heliopolis became medical schools, training especially women students, which I'll talk about a little later. Isis has negative connotations in this day and age, but she was a skilled physician at one point, specializing in the diseases of women and children. Isis worship was universal among Egyptians. She, came, she became um, one of the Egyptian deities, and the science of medicine is said to have originated with Isis. Heliopolis and Sais are the most prominent of the medical schools in Egypt that educated women students. Um, and as you can see, whoops, Heliopolis and Sais are close to the Mediterranean Sea in northern Egypt. Inscriptions have been found, and one of them has been translated. It says, I have come from the school of medicine at Heliopolis and have studied at the women's school at Sais, where the divine mothers have taught me how to cure diseases. 
plenty of evidence in ancient writings that women were skilled surgeons. They were skillful in the use of stone knives for caesarean sections, removal of breast tumors, setting bones with splints. And ancient Hebrew writings show that women worked as surgeons. For those of you who know Moses from the Old Testament, Zipporah, his wife, supposedly trained at Sais, one of these medical schools, and she practiced circumcision. Greece and Italy were also countries where women had a prominent role in medicine. Um, this picture shows a Greek woman bloodletting. It used to be thought that uh, diseases arose as a result of imbalance in humors um, in people's blood, and so bloodletting was the initial step of curing someone of disease. I'm going to fast forward to the Middle Ages. Um, Salerno was a town in Italy where women were educated in medicine. Trotula was a famous gynecologist, and a textbook that she wrote was used for hundreds of years in Europe in the Middle Ages. Um, gradually, regulations came into effect as surgeons began to organize themselves into guilds, and women were barred. This is one of the charters, uh, an extract from one of the charters. It says, no carpenter, smith, weaver, or woman shall practice surgery. Colonial America, um, again, it was difficult for women to practice medicine. Medical education was in the hands of male private practitioners who refused to teach women. By the mid-19th century, um, the first women started securing formal training in the U.S., but this was not easy. In 1850, the world's first medical college dedicated to women opened in Pennsylvania. In 1893, Johns Hopkins began admitting women. But it was not an easy feat for a woman to get medical education, and sometimes women disguise themselves as men. The most famous example of this was James Barry, who was born Margaret Buckley. She eventually studied at Edinburgh Medical School after doing an apprenticeship, um, became an army surgeon during the Napoleonic Wars, performed one of the first successful C-sections in the Western world, um, and at the time of death was discovered to be a woman. This was kept hushed for decades after her death. Elizabeth Blackwell, as many of you know, was the first medical graduate in the United States. She studied at Geneva Medical College. Despite graduating with a gold medal in 1849, she could not get a residency position in the United States because she was a woman. So she worked as a nurse in France. Her goal was to become a surgeon but she developed an infection in one eye and lost vision and had to give up this dream. Mary Edwards Walker was the second woman medical graduate, but the first female surgeon in the United States. She graduated from Syracuse Medical College, also in New York State, was the first female surgeon in the US Army, and the first and only Congressional Medal of Honor recipient who's a woman. She, too, struggled to find um, surgical training after she was done with medical school. So now a little about the current state numbers, because I want to um, give a chance for the women contributors who are here to tell you their stories. Um, medical school enrollment has come from a time when, in the late 1890s, it was about 10% of medical school enrollees were female. Now it's 50-50. 
Applicants to surgical residencies are about 35% female. This is all surgical residencies. Um, in 2008, there were 22,000 residents and fellows. Those are trainees who are training to become surgeons or specialty surgeons, and about 37% of them were female. You can see that the most number of females are in the field of obstetrics and gynecology. Uh, the least are in neurosurgery, orthopedics, and thoracic surgery. Fully trained surgeons in all specialties, these are numbers from 2009 that are the most recent numbers available, approximately 135,000. 21% of these are female. And uh, the number is probably slightly higher now, but that's the approximate number of fully trained women surgeons in the United States. Again, the maximum number is in obstetrics and gynecology. Um, women in neurosurgery, orthopedics, thoracics, and urology remain a minority. These are some numbers from the world of academic surgery. Um, as you can see, the more senior the titles get, the fewer, the lower the percentages of women. So you have 40% of women are assistant professors, but um, still very few departmental heads. So we've come a long way from the time when women had to disguise themselves as men to do what they really loved doing and from a time when women had to choose between a career in surgery and being able to have kids and a family life. Um, and I'm so glad that all of you are here because this evening is really about some remarkable women who've contributed to this book and shared their stories about experiences they've um, had while trying to get into the process of training in surgery. And the experiences that women in the 1970s and 80s had is very different from experiences today. This book is a celebration of the role that women have played in surgery. I hope it becomes a resource for medical students and for residents, for anyone interested in the field who asks questions like, what's it like? Is it really worth it in the end after those years of training? Some of the trailblazers in American surgery have contributed to this book. Several of them are here today, but the ones who are not here, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about them. One of them is Katherine Anderson. She was the first woman president of the um, now 103-year-old American College of Surgeons. She's contributed and um, told the story of how she came across from England after meeting her husband and found a great deal of uh, resistance when she tried to train as a surgeon. Julie Freischlag, the first woman chair of surgery at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, has written her personal story. Carol Sawmiller of the US Navy, she was a ship surgeon on board the USS Carl Vinson. Susan Reed, uh, the first Canadian woman who became head of an academic department of surgery. They've all um, written very personal stories. With that, I'm going to move to the women who are here today. I'm going to first introduce Dr. Patricia Newman, and she's going to uh, share some of her experiences with you. Dr. Newman is a trailblazing pioneer for women in this field and has held numerous positions of leadership. She is the first woman chair of the American Board of Surgery, the founder of the Association of Women in Surgery, the second woman president of the American College of Surgeons, she was the 92nd president. She 
is the Lloyd S. Rogers Professor of Surgery Emeritus from SUNY. And after retiring from clinical practice in 2007, SUNY awarded her emeritus status and in 2009 created the Patricia J. Newman, MD, Chair of Surgery, the first endowed chair for a woman surgeon in the United States. There's not much more that I can say. I'm going to ask Dr. Newman to come up here and share some of her stories. I think I'm the oldest woman surgeon here. I'm pretty sure of that. And I actually started my surgical residency 50 years ago. When I started my surgical residency, the statistics would, under the women, under surgical statistics, would say not applicable or not sufficient. And um, if they had a number, it was 0.01%. I actually had never met a woman surgeon when I decided I wanted to become a woman surgeon. And I was actually told that that was not something that women did. And um, when I tried to apply for a residency, my applications were just returned to me. And um, I actually had to make a deal with the chairman in my own institution, who I actually knew very well. He took care of both my parents, and so I, I thought I knew him quite well. And when I told him I wanted to be a surgeon, he said, well, why would you want to ruin your life? And I said, well, have you ruined your life? And he said, not really. I said, it's pretty nice. I said, well, you know, so I, I want to do the same thing. And he said, well, you'll never be able to get married and have children and all this. I said, he said, and how will you operate when you're pregnant? And I said to him, I said, you know, I have known many men who were much fatter than any pregnant woman I've ever known. <laughs> And um, he said, well, point well taken. <laughs> so um, I actually cut a deal with him, something I don't think you could ever do today. And the deal, and he also said that I'd never seen really good quality medicine practiced. I said, you forget that I spent my summers in Boston at Mass General Hospital, and I went to their grand rounds every week. I think that's pretty high-class medicine. He said, oh, I forgot about that. So um, the deal was that if I did six months of medicine and six months of surgery, and that the surgeons that I worked with thought that I was capable of becoming a surgeon, and I still didn't want to be an internist, he would give me a spot in our pyramidal program. And we started usually with 16 and finished with four. So it was still um, a little bit of a battle to get, get through the program. But I, um, I survived, and I loved it. I mean, I just it didn't bother me um, that there were a lot of sexist things done and said and a whole variety of different problems because you could always get around them. You could always find allies. You could always you know, do the things that you wanted to do. And, and I think it is sort of set the stage for my life in that, you know, you just do what you want to do. You do what you think needs to be done because you can. And um, I've watched a million women here do that. Um, Dr. John has done that with this book. Actually, Susan Porres, another one of the women, is just the editor of a book that's coming about career choices that will be published by the Association of Women Surgeons. I've seen so many women become trailblazers. I, I also think that it was my heritage. I went to school in Syracuse. The Geneva Medical College is the precursor of my school, and Elizabeth Blackwell graduated as the first woman to graduate from an American medical school. I used to take great pride in telling our administration that that was the last proactive thing that they had done for women. 
which was pretty true because it wasn't until the 2000s that we had our first woman chair in any major department. And you just have to keep niggling at people a little bit about this and that, and somehow eventually they'll come around and see, um, see the truth in the benefit of diversity. Um, I laughed when we always have at our medical school this thing, evening with a doctor, when the medical students come to, um, to school and you have like eight or ten medical students come to your house, you feed them dinner and on and on. It wasn't until almost 2000 that my table was not filled with white American men. And one year, I actually had a table where there were no white American men. And I was just so happy that we had achieved diversity. There were women, there were, were people who were ethnically not uh, first-generation Americans, and it was just wonderful to see that change in the medical school and how uh, now we were embracing people from other countries. When I first practiced surgery, people who came from foreign countries were actually taken advantage of and used as basically slave labor for, for the workforce, but they really weren't allowed to advance and become important people in the medical care system. So in my 50 years, I have seen just dramatic changes, but the work isn't all done, and I think that's what I worry that that women, ethnic minorities, will not appreciate that there still are things to be done. There still is not equal pay. There's still not equal advancement. There still is not equal opportunity for research um, dollars. There's still many, many things that are not on target. So for those of you who are at the other end of the spectrum from me, don't forget that and keep up the cause and the good work. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Newman. I'm going to ask Dr. Zeiger to come up next. Dr. Martha Zeiger is Professor of Surgery and the Chief of the Endocrine Surgery Division at Johns Hopkins. She's the Associate Vice Chair of Research. She's the Associate Dean for Postdoctoral Affairs at Johns Hopkins. She's Dean of the Endocrine Surgery University, which is an annual course for all endocrine surgery fellows in North America. She worked as a commander and attending surgeon at the National Naval Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. She um, directed an NIH-funded molecular biology laboratory for over 20 years and has a busy endocrine surgery practice at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Dr. Zeiger. Um, I would also like to take a moment and thank Dr. Preethi John for putting this incredible book together for the publicists from University of Maryland uh, putting on this program, and we hope many, many more programs, NPR, et cetera, et cetera, New York Times. Um, so congratulations on a uh, job well done. That I assume since I'm the second one up here, I'm the second oldest person in the audience. <laughs> So how do you talk about decades of a career? Um, I think the only way I can talk about it is sort of bullet points, uh, little vignettes to sort of tell you, uh, give you examples of what I went through. Um, Dr. Newman was actually one of the first women faculty members I ever laid eyes on. And um, she was one of three at the 
um, American Association of Endocrine Surgeons. Um, we all sat in the back row. We used to call it the women's ghetto. Um, it actually took me 11 years. I counted this up from the time I started medical school until the year I saw some of my the first women faculty members was 11 years. So that's how long it took me to actually see a woman who was a surgeon. So how I got it in my little brain to become a surgeon, I'm really actually not quite sure. A um, little bit about me. I um, joined the United States Navy so that I could pay for medical school, so I ended up having, a, a, having time, payback time, in the U.S. Navy, and that was actually quite a formative experience, which we'll, which we'll uh, get to in a minute. Choosing to go into surgery was a, as an iterative process. I thought I'd be a pediatrician. That's what women did. I did outpatient pediatrics, and that was the end of it. All I needed to do was spend one day with a pediatrician, and that was the end of that. Um, so it wasn't until I did my internship in the Navy, I did a general medical internship. So this is the first of two internships. Um, and I did a general medical internship so that I could prepare myself to be a general medical officer. I was, I was um, married and wanted to have children um, in the U.S. Navy, so I did very general rotations. And I found that I really loved the procedures in the unit. If ever they were looking for someone in the intensive care unit, a medical intensive care unit, and they couldn't find me, it was... I was always with that patient who needed a procedure, chest tube, A-line, central line, and so forth. So I clearly loved uh, to do uh, procedures. But it took several years until I figured out that I wanted to become a surgeon. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was based on the fact that I just loved procedures. I thought about OB and then... Uh, absurd, absurdity of all absurdities. Um, here I am at Johns Hopkins, one of the uh, most academic institutions in the world. And the reason I chose surgery was that so that I could be a third world surgeon. And I've actually never done that in my career. So I went, I, when I interviewed for surgical residency, finally, I interviewed at the place, um, I remember interviewing at the place where I eventually got into it, Maine Medical Center. I was seven months pregnant with my second child. Hold on to that thought for a second. Um, fortunately, they accepted me. Um, and I went through the program as the first woman to graduate uh, th through the program. Um, and it, it was a wonderful experience. As, as Pat uh, mentioned, you really had to be top-notch as a woman because you were highly scrutinized. You couldn't be on the bell curve with the men because there was no bell curve for the women, right? You had to be absolutely top-notch. But when you were top-notch, they were flabbergasted. I mean, they just thought it was just so amazing that you were a good surgeon. You went, you ran with the punches. You, you know, you did your work and so forth. So that that was that was the reward that we got um, at that time. When I graduated, uh, for some reason I don't know how this happened. I ended up with my original folder in hand, and and just uh, uh, step back um, through the process. The men who had women coming up through, who had daughters coming up through the ranks who wanted to become professionals, um, they were the ones that embraced us, or embraced me. I guess I was the, the, the token. Because they realized that, yes, women now want to become professionals. And so I had a, a wonderful mentors whom I'm actually still in touch with who helped me along the way. But I got a hold of my folder. I don't know how I did it. And I looked at the first page when I was interviewed by the chair 
and I was described, and I'll just tell those people who aren't in medicine what this means. I was written, I was a, I don't know how old I was, 28-year-old uh, G2P1 at 29 weeks. <laughs> what that means was, that's how they wrote me up. That means I was, had been pregnant twice, I had delivered one child, but I was 29 weeks pregnant with my second child. So that was pretty interesting. Um, other things along the way, in terms of being a woman and being in unique experiences, I then uh, had um, experience as a surgeon um, in the U.S. Navy. I had to pay back time. So I was a surgeon in the U.S. Navy. And again, very interesting <coughs> um, experience. I remember um, in, the, in the Navy you have collateral uh, assignments. And so one of the assignments that the military always covered is the inauguration. And the Army and the Air Force and the Navy cover it. Well, the four years before, the Navy had drawn the straw of sitting in an ambulance in freezing cold weather, putting Band-Aids on, you know, the, the people who are out there for the inaugural parade. Well, so my boss called me in and said, I need you to man some, you know, man some uh, inaugural station. And um, so uh, I said, sure, fine, whatever. And we drew the actual inauguration. So I ended up being the surgeon in the White House for George H.W. Bush with a surgical team responsible for his life if anything happened on the platform. And that was quite a, quite a unique um, experience. Like Pat, I think um, along the way you find allies. And so even in the military, you think the most chauvinistic uh, place in the world. I actually would tell you that academic centers are more chauvinistic than the United States Navy. Um, but in the U.S. Navy, uh, the men actually would help me. I had two children at the time, and we had, we had duty stations all over the world, in the Philippines, in Europe, and so forth. And the men were actually quite... Um, protective of me and would keep me locally. I didn't even ask for it, but they knew I didn't want to leave my children. I was the only one with children. And so you do find allies who, who definitely um, will help you along the way. Words of wisdom. Um, I think, uh, first of all, you are in a great place right now. Don't lose the momentum that you know all of us started many, many years ago. Keep that momentum. We're not where we need to be. Um, Hopkins just did a survey, a whole institutional survey, and uh, job satisfaction is lower. There's inequity within job satisfaction, within promotion, and within major leadership roles, as uh, Dr. Johns showed us. So keep, keep that momentum. Along the way, though, just enjoy the process. Find those people who will support you. There are many, many people, men, women, who will um, support you and embrace um, their recommendations and turn to them. And definitely along the way, just enjoy the ride. You're a surgeon for a reason. Um, it's a wonderful specialty. I, I feel blessed when I, when I step back and really think about it. I feel honored that I'm allowed to actually operate on people and help them. And thank you very much for listening to my brief story. Thanks, Dr. Zeiger. I'm going to ask Dr. Susan Porries to come up next. She is an associate professor of surgery at the Harvard Medical School. 
the immediate past president of the Association of Women Surgeons, medical director of the Hoffman Breast Center. She works as a breast surgeon at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Mount Auburn Hospital. She's the co-editor of two books and a third book coming out, The Soul of a Doctor and Cancer, Biography of a Disease. I hope you can tell us about the third book that's due soon. Dr. Poris. Thank you very much, Preeti, and I just want to congratulate you on what I think will be a classic. So it's a wonderful book uh, that you put together. Um, I thought I'd just tell a little story about, uh, in the same spirit of how far people have come in the last um, few years. Um, Pat has a little more time in it than I do, but <laughs> um, I have a son who's 20, 25 years old, and I was reflecting back on um, you know, when I became pregnant. And in our residency, I was a resident at the University of Vermont in Burlington, where they actually, John Davis was the chair, and he was pretty open to women because he had daughters uh, that wanted to be physicians. So he was more open to women being surgeons than a lot of other uh, chiefs in the country. But as most departments are run with, you know, a nice guy who's the chair, he's the visionary, and then there's a hatchet man who is the bean counter, the second in command, Jerry Abrams, who's, you know, God rest his soul, he's gone now, but he was tough. <laughs> he came out of the Zollinger um, training program at, in Ohio State, and so he'd been trained, uh, you know, to be a very tough uh, guy. And... Um, I think he was tough on everybody, not, not just the women, but he made it clear that if you got pregnant, you would be fired. <laughs> and um, I was an intern, and my chief resident got pregnant, uh, Roberta Gartside, and, uh, but nobody was going to mess with her. Nobody could fire her because, A, she was about six feet tall, and she was, you know, she was not slight. She wasn't fat, but she was a big person, and she was a very good surgeon. And so when she got pregnant, that became that uh, little dictum about being fired kind of went away quietly. But even so, um, you know, I became pregnant as a chief resident, and I was really no Roberta Gartside, as you can see. I'm not, you know, a very tall person. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just didn't tell anybody because I was afraid I wouldn't get any of the good cases. You know, they would be more apt to give them to the male uh, counterparts if they knew I was pregnant. So the, all I did was try to get out of the room when we had to do x-rays, you know, in the middle, the cholangiograms and so forth. And I remember Dr. Pilcher saying to me, what's the matter with you? Are you pregnant? And I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm not pregnant. <laughs> so then I went from um, Vermont to Boston, where I was going to do a, um, a research fellowship in Glenn Steele's lab. And they'd never had a woman in the lab. And so, again, I didn't really feel that I could say that I was pregnant. And so I just didn't. And then at one of the uh, gatherings at my mentor's house, um, Ian Summerhays, his wife said to me, I was getting a little big at that point, and she, she wondered probably why I was getting so fat. And she said, are, are you pregnant? And then I really had to admit it because at that point I you know, could barely get between the the uh, sink and the wall in the lab, so it became obvious. But there was no such thing as maternity leave. There was no maternity policy. They said, just take your vacation time and your sick time and, and come back to work. 
And so I think, you know, since that time, the Association of Women Surgeons that uh, Pat founded has done so much to make things better for women, um, maternity policies, uh, all kinds of examples have been set so that women really don't have to think about it. And today, women surgeons have families and they can be open about it and celebratory, you know, when they're pregnant, which is great. And uh, actually, a couple of years ago, at one of the American College of Surgeons, Julie Freischlag and a couple of other people, uh, Miriam Curet, told very personal stories about what they went through to get pregnant, their fertility treatments and everything else. I mean, sharing very personal details as a way of letting younger women know that this was important and there's no reason that they can't have a family if they want to. Not everyone wants to have children, and there are those days when you wonder why you did want that, but, <laughs> but if you do want to have children, you, you should be able to and still have your a career as a surgeon. So today, the plastic surgeon that I work with, um, she's pregnant with her fourth child, and that's really nothing unusual today, and I think that we can celebrate that uh, small step of progress Many other things have been achieved as well, but I think that's very important for, um, you know, smart, capable women to be able to have a family life as well as a career. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Porries. A urologist has written a lovely essay about the difficulties she faced getting pregnant while uh, she was training. Dr. Jackson from University of uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey. I'm going to call Dr. Yeremchuk up next. Dr. Kathleen Yeremchuk is chair of ENT, otolaryngology, at Henry Ford Hospital. She's come all the way from Detroit, Michigan. She was the first woman elected to the position of president of the Michigan Otolaryngology Society and Vice President of the Middle Section of the Triological Society. She is a member of the Board of Directors for the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. That's a mouthful. <laughs> Thank you. A pleasure to be here. I think I chose otolaryngology because my last name is Yeromchuk, and I had to get something to balance it all out. You know, the longer, the better kind of thing. Um, I, and I'm going to say, in some things I'm very astute, and some things I'm oblivious. And I was clearly oblivious that there were no other women in otolaryngology when I went into it. Uh, when I finished, after four years, it was 98.5% male. It just never dawned on me when I was going into it that it was going to be that unusual. So ENT, we'll make it easy, surgical subspecialty. Um, and when you go into a surgical subspecialty, oftentimes people think you're not tough enough, you're not hard enough, you're not good enough, you're just going to be taking care of snotty noses. So I decided for my internship in general surgery to do it at Cook County Hospital. Because clearly, if you could go through general surgery at Cook County Hospital, there would never be any fear in your heart ever over anything. And, and that was true. Now, it was wonderful. Cook County Hospital, you got four weeks vacation. The problem was you had to take it all at once, and I got it my 12th month, which means for 11 months, you didn't get a day off. And it was every other night call. And we all know every 
every other night call. The problem is the good cases come in on the night you're off. <laughs> so I lived in a brownstone with my husband. The parking garage was about a block away or so. And of course, rounds were at 6 in the morning, so you'd usually get there at 5.30. You'd get home at night the next night, maybe at 8 or 9. And there was a nice gentleman that always watched the parking garage, so you felt safe when you went to get your car and when you came back. And one morning, he was talking to me as I was trudging to my car, and he started to talk to me, you know, about the things and and whatever. And then he said, you know, catting around just doesn't help anything. (laughs) And I was clearly sleep-deprived, and I tried to hold on to the conversation, but he just was not going to let it go. So the concept that someone would not come home every other night had only one reason in his mind. (laughs) So I had to stop and I had to think and compose myself and explain, no, that's not exactly it. I'm a doctor and I work at Cook County and they only let me come home every other night. (laughs) And, And we got through that. So much as we talked about what we looked like when we were in the hospital, when we were elsewhere, people looked at us a little strange because why would you not come home and have dinner on the table and enjoy yourself and do all those kinds of things? It's interesting in ENT, Dr. Newman was talking about uh, professional advancement. Um, Dr. Preeti was talking about, uh, Dr. John was talking about, you know, uh, professorships and that kind of thing. In ENT now, uh, 50% of the residents are female, profound, and I'm sure that 98.5% is no longer true. However, uh, 105 academic departments in the country, and there are four female chairs. Um, I always say we can have our meetings in a Mini Cooper. I'm from Detroit. I'm hoping to move into an SUV. That is my goal. By the time that I am done, that we will be able to meet in an SUV, and there's at least nine of us that will be able to share our enjoyment of of what's going on. We still look at the number of professorships that are around, and that NA, you know, not applicable, the little asterisk, numbers are too small to be able to calculate that this is a problem. So as recently as last year, there was an article about uh, progression within academia for female otolaryngologists. And there were, for chairmen, it was not applicable, not enough to be able to count. Uh, for full professorships, once again, too small to number. So if you do a trend line, we're looking at somewhere about 2040 that this will happen. So I agree. There's still the battle to be fought. There's still new horizons for women to excel at and to be able to move forward. And um, when I have my residents and 50% of my program is now female, I am absolutely, make sure you publish, make sure you're up on the podium, make sure that you have your name out there, raise your hand for every committee so you know you're there, uh, and, and, and fight the battle because it's still there to be won. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Yaramchek. Should have just said ENT. (laughs) I'm going to call Dr. Nia Banks up next. Nia was an intern when I was a PGY2 at Johns Hopkins. She is a plastic reconstructive craniofacial and aesthetic surgeon. She is the chief of plastic surgery at Doctors Community Hospital in Lanham, Maryland. 
She is the owner of the Beau Arts Institute of Plastic Surgery, which provides reconstructive and cosmetic surgery services to men and women in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. She trained at Johns Hopkins. She is the first African-American female graduate from the Hopkins Plastic Surgery Residency Program. Nia. I want to thank Pretty for giving us a place to share our stories. Um, as you've heard, they're varied and unique and sometimes funny and tearful and wonderful and loving. And um, she asked me to get some stats together about African-American female surgeons. Well, they don't exist. <laughs> so I had to do some digging for that. You, you did hear that we are doing better in that of all the um, surgical specialties right now of existing and fully trained physicians, we're about 14%. So we're doing pretty good. But of the residents, we're almost 28%. So we're well on our way to numbers increasing very, very quickly. And some of this has to do with, uh, unfortunately, the reimbursement of medicine and that there are less and less men who find it to be a way they can take care of their families. And so now we have people who really want to take care of patients who may be taking over the medical school. So we're, we're getting there. When it comes to African-American female surgeons, in plastic surgery, um, African-American men and women make up about 6% of all plastic surgeons across the country. That's from 2007. And if I kind of cross-reference that to 12% of plastic surgeons are female, and I multiply, I was an engineer, so I can do that. So it's about 0.4% of us who are African-American female plastic surgeons. So I had a reporter call my office one time because they were looking for someone to interview, and they said, we're looking for a black female plastic surgeon, and you're like a unicorn. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's 2014, that's actually somewhat sad, but, but we're getting there. And I wanted to share with you um, my uh, mentors and my predecessors, I've shared with you some of their stories and what they've had to, to encounter and deal with and, and embrace in order to be surgeons. And I thank you for doing that. Dr. Zeiger actually was a mentor of mine when I was at Hopkins. Even I'm a plastic surgeon and she's a, a surgical oncologist. She was a mentor of mine because she was accessible. She was, she was um, a dominant woman in the field. She was energetic and she was doing great research. So we wrote, some, we wrote a paper together. Um, so I want to read a little bit of my essay so you can understand why we might want to go through those things. The reason that we do the things we do. So this is a little bit of a story about um, some questions I asked myself when I asked one of my colleagues why there were so few images of black women in his slides. I take care of a lot of black women, and I do a lot of breast reconstruction. As you can imagine, that is very personal, and it's very visual. So it's very important to relay a message in pictures when you're talking to patients about what they're going to embark upon and how we're going to get to the other side of this terrible diagnosis. So the company representative responded that their patient materials were recently changed to include Latina women, and she acknowledged that they neglected to include images of black women. She understood that, just like young people choosing careers, it really helps to see images that look like you. So imagine a time when you are at your most vulnerable, when you are sick or injured. How comforting would it be to see someone who looks like you, someone you share some common ground with, no matter how narrow that commonality may be. As physicians, as surgeons, we are the ultimate professionals. We take care of people to the best of our ability, regardless of their backgrounds. Our medical schools and residency programs teach us that. We talk about ethics and cultural competency and are graded for this. 
We may leave our biases at the door or try to, but you can believe that the patient has not made the same resolution. If anything, when you are vulnerable, when you are hurt, when you are scared, you fall back on your defense mechanisms. Racism, sexism, paranoia, ageism, classism, xenophobia, East versus West, North versus South, it all comes out. As a surgical resident, you are taught to keep your head down, toe the line, get it done, don't make waves, don't complain, don't whine, just get it done. When my assertiveness, read aggressiveness if you're a female, read assertive if you're talking about a male, fail to get things done, I would gently remind the consultant, nurse, radiology technician, you are not doing it for me, you're doing it for the patient. We all do it for the patient. Thank you, Nia. Dr. Sylvia Ramos is clinical professor of surgery at University of New Mexico School of Medicine. She's flown here all the way from New Mexico. She's a general surgeon. She specializes in the diagnosis and management of breast diseases. She's quite an activist for women's rights. She coordinates the campaign for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment for the American Humanist Association. Dr. Ramos. Thank you very much. And thank you all for coming. When I finished my surgical training, things were a little better than when Dr. Newman did. Instead of the 0.01% of US surgeons who were women, for me it was 0.05. So we were moving along. And 40% uh, of those women at that time had trained abroad. So we were almost as rare as hen's teeth and as invisible. In fact, in an article uh, in uh, 1985 on what were the qualities for a male uh, surgical department of, of a surgical department chairman, it said in part, he should be a superman. And have an attractive, understanding wife who will help him achieve his objectives at home and abroad. <laughs> Talk about invisible. So it's not surprising that the women uh, accomplished surgeons and surgical residents changed to go into the operating room in the nurse's locker room. The surgeon's dressing room was kept for the male surgeons, who were, of course, the, the actual real surgeons. It would have been fine, except that in, those, in that locker room, the men not only talked about personal things, but also made professional connections that will help them when they finish training, find great jobs. They also got asked out on, uh, on outings. Let's go, have, you know, the after, let's spend the afternoon in golf, where they also got to meet other doctors and other possible contacts for their future direction. So... I decided that I would counterbalance this a little by asking women surgeons, women surgical residents, to come to my house for dinner. And if I could round up uh, a couple of the women surgical um, attendings who were around, they would come also. 
As it turns out, the male surgical residents complained to our department of chairman, uh, to our department of surgery chairman, and he took me aside one day and said, I hear you don't invite the guy residents to your house for dinner, but you always have the women residents. So uh, this poem has a little to do with that. It's called A Place of Our Own. We gather in my living room in Riverdale, above the dark still waters of the Hudson, for dinner in a space devoid of men, a space where we can sit relaxed, free of male clothing and attitudes donned every time we go into OR, ICU, emergency, a space where we can let our guard down, rearm for the battles of another day. Spread around the spacious room, eating takeout food, my culinary talents undeveloped, more lack of interest than lack of time. The few who inhabit this man's world are as different from one another as we are from them. We are the toughest nails woman, the one who cries the fattest tears ever seen woman, the flaky woman, the much too soft woman, the maybe too old woman, the pretty plump woman, and I, the one who's been through the whole process and still stands woman. So I heard us called. Occasionally, my nine-year-old daughter wanders in, drawn by the jokes and laughter, clinical anecdotes, sobering stories, and yes, ranting and ravings of women who chose to take the knife against all odds. To her, we're all just fine women. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ramos. I had only heard of Billings, Montana. Today I actually met Dr. Huffman, who lives in Billings, Montana. She flew in today. She used to be a licensed practical nurse, um, then went on to medical school. She is a critical care surgeon, practiced as an acute care surgeon at the University of Florida in Jacksonville, Florida. She now lives high atop a bluff in Montana, where she writes, looking out over the plains and mountains. Dr. Huffman, please share your story with us. Hello, everybody. I, too, want to thank Dr. Johns for undertaking this project and making it, making it happen. Um, I actually grew up as a, I was first a victim of child abuse and then domestic violence. But even then, I knew I wanted to travel and do things um, that were beyond what appeared to be the scope of possibilities for me. Um, I went on. I was LPN for 12 and a half years. And then I um, went on to medical school and surgical residency. The first day of my surgical residency, my chief resident scowled at me and said, I don't think women should be surgeons, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that, does, that you don't become one and followed it up with saying he was going to dinner with XYZ attending. Um, and true to his name, throughout my residency, he did things to try to sabotage that process, including altering my records. Um, also, um, during 
my residency. Um, I actually started my residency in, in 1989. Um, and just before that, I was fortunate when we talk about the four mothers of surgery to have worked. I did my um, medical school at The Ohio State University, and Olga Jonasson was the first chair, um, woman chair of surgery, so she was a great mentor for me. Um, so during my, my time in residency, it was the early 90s, and, and some of you of, of that era may remember there were some articles that came out about um, harassment um, in surgery and in the surgical residency. So our dean actually formed a committee, um, and as one of the few women surgeons I was, a residents, I was asked to be on that committee. One of the attendings was so affronted by this that he would... Uh, he knew what day of the week and month I would go to that meeting, so he would always schedule his biggest cases that would have been mine as the chief surgery resident to do and would do them with a junior male resident. And then I went, when I would come back, he would say things like, well, what did you tell on me today about? And, of course, I'm thinking, me thinks thou dost protest too much. <laughs> or he would say, well, I guess since I can't abuse the residents anymore, I guess I have to go home and beat my wife. Um, this was in the 90s. This isn't like ancient history. <laughs> um, I carried a, a three by five card in my pocket that said, don't let the bastards grind you down. You may have heard the Latin translation for that. <laughs> but that was in my pocket every day, and I can't tell you how threadbare that card became. <laughs> um, so I went on. I finished my surgery residency. I did a trauma fellowship. And I was actually going to be the first critical care fellow at the University of South Florida in Tampa, but then they weren't approved because they already had two other critical care fellowships. So I stayed on as a faculty for a year and then um, went on to do a critical care in Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. And when I was going to do that, my chair took me aside and he said, now why do you want to do that? Um, there's, you know, surgeon... Jones, that's a made-up name, who has a nice little um, community practice, you know, down in Sun City, Florida. You could go and work for him, not with him, notice, but for him. I said, no, I've already done a trauma fellowship. I'm going to be a trauma surgeon. I don't want to be somebody's boy like I've been all these years. Um, so I did go on. I did my um, critical care fellowship. I practiced in the Philly Burbs for 10 years as a trauma surgeon, and then in Jacksonville, Florida, at the Gators, poor stepsister, <laughs> for five years. And then I was <clears throat> very fortunate to have the opportunity um, to go just a week after the Haiti earthquake and to go for five other missions. And I would say those six missions to Haiti really changed my life, and it was an incredible opportunity. And my chair at that time had the understanding that that was an important thing and actually gave me administrative time to go to do that. Um, I just want to read one poem I have in this book. Um, as surgeons um, and as, as a trauma surgeon, uh, we find that life sometimes is just like a very precarious suspension bridge, um, and it's on this fragile structure that fierce battles occur, um, and sometimes the victim clings, and sometimes the victim crashes. Um, it's called Catch and Release. Shot, he flounders, flashing in a sea of blood, mouth gasping for air. We toss the lifeline and circle with care, reel closer. He struggles, 
leaking life, sinking in an acid pool. We lift him from the brink, bubble oxygen, flesh plasma, pack, stitch, prey. Despite all, he fades, paling, failing. We cease efforts, free the hook from his lip, liberate to the river sticks. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Huffman. We've come to the end of the hour, but I do want to acknowledge the contributors who haven't had a chance to speak who are here today, particularly two um, women who were trainees when they wrote their articles for the book. One of them is Adriana Laser. She was a general surgery resident when she wrote her essay and a beautiful poem. She's now a vascular surgery fellow at the University of Maryland. Um, Adriana, could you come up here wherever you are? The other person is Minerva Romero Arenas. She is a general surgery resident at the Sinai Hospital of Baltimore. She also wrote a beautiful essay um, while training as a surgery resident. It's pretty incredible that they managed to do this. Um, the number of hours that a resident has to work was cut down in 2003 to 80 hours a week. It's still quite a lot of work. Um, Adriana has two young children. She used to have a dog. I have no idea how you did it. Um, but thank you for coming. And Minerva, if you're around, can you come up too? Hi, I'm Adriana Laser. Um, yeah, I... Um, was very felt very honored that Dr. John asked me to uh, be one of the contributors, especially considering um, my company. Um, and I ended up at first writing the piece that was um, kind of given as a as a suggestion. Of, well, kind of write about your journey um, thus far, and I did that. And then um, at the time that I wrote it, which was I guess almost or about two years ago now, um, my daughter was, was very young. She was under six months, and um, I spent a lot of time pumping um, and not as much time nursing, which um, was, was an unfortunate balance. But um, the, it made the moments that I was able to spend with her like that, even if it was in the middle of the night and I would kind of wake her up and be the only opportunities to see her sometimes in days, and uh, awake anyways. And um, I was so moved at... at um, during those experiences that I, I felt uh, th to write a poem about that, and so that, that's my other uh, piece there. But I'm so happy that, that this book is being published, and, and I agree with Dr. John in that a lot of, um, even in my tenure here at, at University of Maryland, where I spent all of my, my training so far, um, I've had a lot of females been either referred to me or kind of, you know, asked me on the side, outside the operating room or whatever, and, and a lot of my uh, junior residents who came after me talked to me and asked me questions about, oh, how did, you know, how was it during pregnancy, how did you get your time off, you know, all these kinds of little detailed questions, and so I think there's a lot of opportunities for mentorship out there, and I think this is kind of a nice way to add to that.
Well, I'd like to join the chorus and say thank you so much to Dr. John for having undertaken this uh, tremendous project, and I'm very honored to be a part of it. Um, the essay that I wrote, I think, is mostly a reflection uh, during my junior years uh, in residency, and uh, I, I know that I have a very long way uh, to go in in my training and my career, um, but I do think that sometimes that first uh, first couple of years really uh, can weed you out. I think I found it a, a lot tougher uh, coming from medical school, whereas you saw earlier the numbers are a little bit more balanced and going into surgery where I too had only met a handful of surgeons um, and actually uh, our ENT doctor is from Henry Ford. One of my mentors um, is uh, at Henry Ford as a general surgery program. So uh, it's a small, tight-knit community. Um, And I think that just like many of the panelists have said earlier, uh, our work is far from done. We do have a long ways to go, uh, particularly in some of the subspecialties where women make up less than 5% of uh, surgeons in orthopedics, neurosurgery, urology. But even amongst general surgeons, we do still hear perhaps not so blatant comments uh, about the shock that we provide to the male surgeons. Um, but we certainly have a long ways to go, and, I, and I'm really thankful to have been included as a part of this book because it gives me this uh, feeling that I am sort of reaching back and pulling other uh, students and residents forward and so that they can see that they too can make it through. Um, and I will make a small plug for the Association of Women Surgeons blog, uh, which we contribute to regularly um, and will be writing uh, an Uh, a short post to um, talk about the book and all of the contributors. couple of other contributors who are here. Anjali Kumar and Kate Calafay are here. They are colon and rectal surgeons who have come from uh, Washington, D.C. and Fairfax, Virginia. Are you still around? Maybe they left. Oh, they're right here. <laughs> um, Kate was an ICU nurse when I was an intern. She has been through the process of medical school, etc. And um, it's, it's been remarkable being in touch with her again because I knew her as an intern. Anjali Kumar had um, a little baby recently. She's written a beautiful essay about uh, being a woman in this field. So would you like to come up and say something? (laughs) Thank you for being here. Is there anyone else? Um, Dr. Slezak, are you here? (gasps) Dr. Chandra Shekhar has come all the way from New York. She's an, auto, she's an ENT surgeon. <laughs> not going to try that. Um, Dr. Chandrasekhar, um, please come up and say a few words if you can. She is director of New York Autology. She's director of Neurotology at the James Peters Veterans Administration Medical Center. She's the medical director of vestibular disorders 
evaluation clinic at the Bronx VA Hospital and has come here from New York. I'm so glad I saw you in the audience. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Um, I'm actually the third female president of the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. So I am. So Kathy, we've come some way. We have a few more ways to come. Um, I loved hearing the stories. I, uh, I started my general surgery in 1986 and ENT in 1988. Uh, I trained with Dr. Frank Spencer at uh, NYU in Bellevue. And if anybody ever met Dr. Spencer, I definitely did not look like the person he wanted to train. Um, but I learned a lot. Uh, we were every other night. I, nobody cared whether I came and went, so nobody really cared that I was, uh, you used it, catting out at night. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's an awesome phrase. Um, we were, uh, one of my chief residents told me an internship at the end of three months together, he was just gross. He was just gross in every possible way. But he was really funny. So I would call my dad and tell him some of the most, the, not the most disgusting, but most of the jokes that this guy would tell me or do. And at the end of three months, he said to me, I have been trying to make you cry for three months. And I was like, oh, you should have told me. I would have cried on day one. <laughs> So he hadn't managed to break me, so somehow uh, I had succeeded. Um, you know, it's really great to see and hear the stories of the women of my group. It's great to see and hear the stories of the younger women. I think um, men and women are better at knowing that any of us can do what we like to do. Um, I'm impressed with my academy because... I'm not only the third female president-elect, but I'm actually, there are two in a row. There's a woman, and then there's another woman, which is amazing. Um, and so I think there's a lot of ways that we can go forward. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Shanja Shaker. Um, I have to say, a lot of us are here because of um, very understanding, kind, visionary men in this field who have given us opportunities. Um, most of my mentors early on were men, so thank you to all the male surgeons out there. <laughs> Finally, I want to thank people here at Enoch Pratt Library for being so wonderfully generous and hosting this event for us. Um, Dr. Hayden, Dr. Keene, Judy Cooper, Cindy Monahan, Jack for making that beautiful poster at the window. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it yet. Teresa Edmonds, Tamika Stewart for organizing everything. David for audiovisual tonight. Thank you, David. Um, a lot of the books I read about women in surgery were borrowed from Pratt Library here. It's, it's a wonderful resource. They have books, CDs, videos, all kinds of things. Um, and I'm honored that you thought this was the, the right venue for this. Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate you making time on a weekday to attend this. 
um, all of us really appreciate your support. And um, I hope you have a good night. Thank you.